Welcome back to the Nick Broadhurst Show. I'm your host, Nick Broadhurst, and you can check out all of my work, including my music, music videos, and every single podcast episode at www.iamnickbroadhurst.com. And wherever you listen to music, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Music, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, just search for my name and you can check out all of my tunes. And that song I was just playing for you is one of my singles called Status Quo. Now, why did I choose this? Well, number one, because it was released a while ago and Melissa and I have been sharing it quite a bit recently on social media and I kind of feel like this song was a bit of a forgotten hero. It's such a cracker. It's so good. It's so much fun. And we had such a strong response when we were sharing it on social media. I thought I'd pop it back in here. I love it. It's got a really uplifting ending to it. But I also chose it because this is Radical Honesty Part 2 and I believe that Radical Honesty definitely changes the status quo. And the question I asked in my last episode, Radical Honesty Part 1, is what would the world look like if we were all radically honest all the time? So this is Part 2 of that question and I asked you guys to send me your questions where I would promise you to answer those with full transparency, with radical honesty. Now, I'm going to be making this a big episode because this following week, I'm taking the week off Broad New World just because I do have my next single coming up, which is called Thank You. At this stage, is set for release on April 20th and also my album in May. And both of these things have big ideas and big campaigns behind them, which I now have to execute. So I need some time out to to make it all happen. And, you know, I think this is a really good one to go into this week because you may take a few listens to get through it. But I'm excited because some of these questions really push me. And I just want to say, if you don't hear your question, then that's because number one, I probably just can't get to it in time. But also many questions actually made great episode topics. So I'm going to be turning some of your questions into whole episodes. So stay tuned for that. And, you know, I kind of dug myself a hole here because I got so many questions and there were so many good ones. My Instagram inbox was completely jammed, which is super exciting. It was slightly overwhelming as well, but I've got through it all and here I am ready to go through it. So I haven't given these questions any thought there's no preparation. Whatever comes out will be my radical honesty, my truth in the moment. And I'm not mentioning the names of the people asking the questions, just purely out of respect for privacy. So let's get into it. Starting with the very first question. Hey Broadhurst, good morning. Just a question for your radical honesty challenge, which I think is super vulnerable and brave. Thank you. What is your take on opening up a relationship for non-monogamy? 
Do you think you could or would want to implement this and why? If the feelings were there with someone other than your beautiful wife, how would you handle that? Yeah, this is a really, really interesting question. I think the answer to this changes depending on where you are at in life. And it's interesting, I actually had this asked three times, so I knew I had to answer it. And the next question, which I'm going to read to you as well, just so you can understand the interest in this topic, goes like this. My fiance and I are in an open relationship and have navigated some sweet uncoverings since introducing this dynamic to our partnership vision. What's the potential for couples to be open? Is it something you have explored? And this particular person recommends a book called Ethical Slut (laughs) for some juicy concepts, which she thinks are relevant for all relationships. And then another question was, Nick, do you ever fantasize about other women? So, juicy topic, that's for sure. Let's come back to the first question about non-monogamy. Would I ever consider it? How do I handle this with my wife? Well, I've got to be honest with you. And that's what we're here to do. That seems pretty funny to say that out loud because this is Radical Honesty Part 2, but uh, this is not something I've ever considered with Melissa. And what's been interesting about this relationship is something very different has taken place in this relationship that's never happened before. And that is that I've never fantasized about another woman. So that answers the third question here. And in the past, you know, I really fantasize a lot about other women. And I say that with all respect for my previous partners. It's no reflection on them whatsoever. It's purely a reflection on me. And this will flow into another question, which is coming up soon. But I do believe this is on many levels. One, because our relationship is so sacred that. I just, there's so much depth in our relationship. There's so much to be explored. I haven't even scratched the surface of this incredible woman, this incredible relationship. Why do I need to go elsewhere? You know, and I say this with no judgment. If you're in an open relationship, that's totally up to you. You know, there's no right or wrong, as I always say. But for me personally, I feel like I'm still a complete amateur when it comes to plunging the depths of our relationship. I feel like I'm just warming up, just getting started. It's already taken me to incredible places that I could never have imagined, to be honest. I've had to work through all sorts of blockages. I've had really heavy heart blockages, which came up for me at the beginning of our relationship. And this this is pretty vulnerable, but it's the spirit of this podcast. But at the beginning of our relationship, I really struggled to surrender to Melissa. And whenever I would be making love and I was on the bottom, my body just said no. It said no, I'm not going there. There was something about me being on the bottom which completely freaked me out at a subconscious level so my body just wouldn't perform. In other words, I couldn't get it up. (laughs) Which is crazy because, you know, Melissa and I have an incredibly strong attraction for each other. But it was instant. And I could feel like a lead plate around my heart almost, like this black energy around my heart. 
And we really had to work through that. It required a lot of trust and vulnerability from both of us. And it was really challenging because it came up in the very first few weeks of our relationship, to be honest. So we moved through that. And that certainly, I look back now, I can't even relate to that. It just seems crazy. But at the time, it was really challenging. But this relationship has opened us up to so much. And it's just the beginning. So for me, non-monogamy is something I've never thought about because it's just not relevant to our situation. Is it possible? Well, I'm not going to say no to anything. Anything's possible. I can't tell you what tomorrow brings, right? But in our situation, I do doubt it. And again, I say this with no judgment, but I do feel, and I've spoken about this in other episodes, that in our relationships, in our romantic relationships, we have this opportunity to grow together in a really profound way. But what's really beautiful is there's this one thing that we can do together that no one else can do with our partner, and that is make love. And I've spoken recently about how love is like the bricks of a house, the bricks of the relationship, whereas the cement that holds it together, the glue that binds us is the intimacy, is the sex. And that's the one thing that no one else gets to do with me. No one else gets to do with Melissa. So I personally hold that incredibly sacred, really sacred. And that's not something I can imagine changing, to be honest. But hey, you never know. Where will we be in 20, 30, 40 years? I have no idea. But right now, that's what feels true for me. So I hope that (laughs) answers your question. But in terms of the fantasies with other women, I want to talk about that because I did have this. And I think, well, I know this really comes from a lack of fulfillment within myself and having to go elsewhere, not being willing to do the work on myself and in my relationship to explore the depths, to find out what's really stored within me, to get to those juicy points. And I do believe that the actual sexual practice itself contributes to this in a big way. And I say that from the masculine perspective where I've spoken about non-ejaculation. I'm going to answer this question soon as well. It's another question in this episode. But like most men, I had, or especially young boys, as a teenager, had a fascination with masturbation. It was like this secret naughty thing that people didn't talk about. So I just used to hide in my bedroom and do it, you know, way too much. Holy moly. I'm surprised I didn't. I probably did give myself adrenal fatigue, actually. But I think, you know, through those relationships, I was still doing it. And I was losing, I was releasing all my power out all the time, right? I was always looking for that external source to turn me on, not realizing that everything I needed within me was already there. So I think the fantasies were there because I allowed myself to be fulfilled by external things. And what we can do with this energy, if we ever see a woman who turns us on, there is a very simple practice that you can do as a man to alchemize that, to turn it from fantasy into just beautiful feminine energy. And the way we do this is, I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm going through a checkout at my local health food shop and there's a girl there serving me. and 
I think she's beautiful and sexy and attractive and she turns me on and I can feel it in my body. I can feel it in my, well, some of my lyrics in my song Bones. I can feel it in my bones. In this case, you'd feel it in your balls. <laughs> but um, the trick here is to acknowledge that the energy is there and then to breathe that energy, to circulate it like you would do during sex with your partner, move it away from your sexual center, away from the testicles and move it up the spine and back down again. So you're circulating it up into the different energy centers throughout the body and you're circulating it around and around. And you do that by using breath, which I'm going to talk about. So you turn that fantasy into just this beautiful energy that washes over you and it's like a beautiful healing gift from that woman. It's a really simple way of looking at it. And I use that example because that's exactly what happened to me. That exact situation happened to me in a previous relationship. So, you know, I speak from experience with that particular one. It was a health food shop. It was going through a checkout. So there's some radical honesty for you. Okay, so I hope that answers your questions. The next one is, how much ego is there really in what you do? (laughs) I find this really interesting because this person, I guess, may not believe that it's possible to do things purely out of service. And when I check in with this question, I look at my music, I look at the work I do with Melissa's business, I look at some of the charitable work I do, I look at our Path to Freedom team that Melissa and I have created. Everything to me feels like service, including this podcast as well. My music and this podcast absolutely feel like service. The Path to Freedom team, which is a doTERRA essential oils business, feels, it it was born completely out of service, 100%. But then serious money starts to get involved. And rather than look at that as ego, I look at it as something really exciting and just worthiness. Worthiness to have been able to call in that level of abundance into my life. And the question is, what do you do with that abundance? And again, this is another question which comes up in this episode. But how much ego is there really in what I do? I guess there is some. I guess in a world of social media where it's very much about the numbers. And I find myself sometimes falling into that because I have an audience which from the numbers side doesn't look very big, but from the engagement side is really strong. And I value every single person who watches my work. I'm not going to say follows. I don't think follower is a very good word, but who watches what I do. I'm so grateful for every single person. In fact, this morning I was on a walk and I got to this little point in this path where I couldn't pass this girl or woman. And she said, morning, I love your stuff. As I was walking past and I said, thank you. And it just made my day. I'm so grateful for every single person who watches what I do. And I don't know, it's really hard. I don't think there's a lot of ego in what I do. I really don't. Whenever I feel like there is humility lacking in some of my work, it feels uncomfortable and I pull back. So I'm really, really conscious of remaining humble with everything that I do. And I'm not always successful at that, but I do my best. But I do feel like my work is very much of service to myself and service to others. And I'm just so grateful that I actually found all these devices in life that light me up so much and that support myself and support others. So I imagine there is some ego, but I really don't think there's very much. Okay, next one. Your life looks so perfect. (laughs) 
is it really as good as it seems? This is interesting because I hope, I assume this person listens to Broad New World because I speak about all my challenges in such transparency. And so I feel like I've kind of answered that question within this podcast already. Is it really as good as it seems? It looks so perfect. Well, I believe everything is perfect all the time. We are always exactly where we need to be, getting the lessons we need to get in that moment. And even when it's really hard, like last year was really challenging for me, the hardest year of my life outside of going through a divorce, this was harder for sure, in a different way. But I didn't know I was going to make it through that year. I didn't know if I physically was going to make it through, which again is a question which comes up. And I feel like I've been very transparent with this already. My life is perfectly imperfect. And I embrace the struggle. I embrace the love. I embrace all of it. That doesn't mean that I'm always a nice human. I speak about this all the time when I'm not a nice human towards Melissa and I do something which doesn't feel in alignment with my core values, I speak about it on the podcast. So I guess to answer this question, I would say go back to episode zero and go all the way through to this episode, number 63, and that will answer your question. But is it really as good as it seems? Yes, it is. But that doesn't mean it's easy. I feel very blessed to have the life that I have, but it doesn't mean it's easy. It is challenging all the time. It's equally challenging and it's equally supportive. That is divine order. That is divine balance. That is the way the universe works. That is yin and yang. You cannot escape the fact that there is negative and positive. It is always there. And if you try and always live in a positive, you are just repressing the negative and it will come back to bite you in the butt. So it's a great question. Life is amazing. But as I said, it's not always easy. Okay, next question. When was the last time you binge ate? It's a good question and a vulnerable one for me. Because I've spoken about this, I did an episode on binge eating, which was called How to Stop Binge Eating. And that was episode number 17. So go to broadhurst.world forward slash 17 for this one. Now, it's a challenging one for me because I'm in this stage of rebuilding. And I've had to let go of everything that I thought to be true in relation to health. Everything that I had been taught in the last couple of years, which came from a very scientific perspective. And I've let go a lot of that stuff. We're talking about keto and various things that I have done. And I've had to embrace a whole new way of eating, which is very, very high in carbohydrates, which for my body constitution, which is Vata Pitta, is what is best for me. If you haven't heard my Ayurveda series, which talks about the different body types from ectomorph, which is Vata, endomorph, which is Kapha, and mesomorph, which is Pitta, head to iamnickbroadhurst.com forward slash 21, and you can check out those episodes from there. But I'm still navigating this because I need to consume a lot of food right now to maintain my body in a state of anabolism and not catabolism. Last year, I got myself into a place of catabolism, meaning my body was breaking down, okay, which was not a good place to be. And it was causing dis-ease in my body. And so now I'm going into a state of anabolism, which means the carbohydrates are rebuilding my body. They're rebuilding my mitochondria. And mitochondria 
which are the little battery cells essentially inside all of our cells, these are what fuel us. This is what give us our energy. And I can tell you my mitochondria last year were almost non-existent because I couldn't walk one lap of Bondi Beach. Seriously, I felt like I had lead plates in my legs and my arms and it used to make me cry. It was so difficult. That's the challenge I faced last year. I felt so bad. And shifting my diet to a much more higher carbohydrate diet and getting a lot of glucose through my system has enabled the mitochondria to heal. And I know that goes against a lot of the keto stuff. They talk about ketones being the fuel for your mitochondria. And to some degree, that is the case. But if you are needing to heal from mitochondrial dysfunction of some sort, then (laughs) to be honest, the glucose is very powerful in that. And again, it depends on your situation. If you have cancer, it's going to be a different story for you on how you handle that. It is all so personal, it's so bio-individual, right? But for me, that means I need to eat a lot of stuff. Okay, coming back to the question, when is the last time I binge ate? And I'm constantly navigating that fine line of getting enough calories in and using that as an excuse to eat too much food. So I frequently eat too much, I would say, because I'm still trying to figure out what my body needs. But I would say in terms of binge eating, where I consciously know that I'm doing something slightly harmful for my body, would have been less than two weeks ago. And I don't know whether it's just me trying to ground myself. I don't know where it comes from. It doesn't feel emotional. I wasn't in a bad place. I wasn't stressed or anything like that. But the body does use carbohydrates as a way of decreasing cortisol. It cuts through the cortisol in your body very, very quickly, right? So maybe I was just cortisol and my body was craving grounding, possibly. But I do believe there is some element of self-sabotage in there and I'm still trying to work through that. I battle with this, to be honest. It's a very conscious thing I have to work through is not overdoing it with so-called healthy food. Everything I eat is healthy, always. But you know, if eating two kilos of sweet potato in one sitting, that can't be good for you. I don't think I've ever done two kilos, but anyway, you get my point. So yeah, look, I've still work on this. It's still a challenge. I hope to transcend this. I believe food is one of my great challenges. I believe that being able to surrender to this and give my body what it needs always in a state of effortlessness will see me reach greater spiritual heights. I do believe food for me is a spiritual journey as it is for many people. So that's my personal experience with binge eating. The next question was around vaccinations and whether or not I vaccinated Leo. And I wrote back to this person and I said, you know what, this is a really personal question. And while I'm all about being open and vulnerable, (laughs) I do have my limits. And vaccinations, I draw the line on that one. Not because I don't want to share it with you. It's because it, it generates a lot of anger, this topic. I just don't believe that it's worth copying the heat, whether we did or didn't vaccinate Leo, because whatever I say, I'm going to cop a lot of criticism. And I don't mind that, but I just don't believe in this case that the risk is worth the reward. This is not my topic. This is someone else's topic. There are experts out there on the benefits of vaccination and the dangers of vaccination. It's not my field and I don't want to play in that field. So I'm not going to answer that question. So I hope you guys respect that. The next question is, do you believe in God? Nice, simple, straight up question, but 
it's a big one, right? God for me is everything. I believe that I am God. I believe when Jesus said that he is the Son of God, he wasn't saying that he was born from God. He was saying that he can see within himself that he is God, and so are you. It is not the job of the guru to say that they are God. It is the job of the guru to say and make you realize and remember that you are God. Right? I'm not saying I'm a guru. I'm talking about Jesus and Buddha and these sorts of people. You are God. I don't believe in putting anyone on pedestals. I've spoken about this already. But God for me is everything. Because the best way to sum it up would be one word love. Love is the sum of every single feeling, the full spectrum of feelings, whether it's emotions, whether it's anger, sadness, happiness, joy, hatred, everything. Everything you feel, when you add them all up, that is love. And you have to experience the full spectrum of everything to experience that, to experience God. Now, how we get to feel that is very individual. For me, I feel that in my meditations. I feel that when I look at my son. Just on the weekend, we were wakeboarding and wake surfing, and Leo was driving the boat, and I just sat there looking at this little divine creation. I had so much love bursting out of my heart for this little being. I couldn't believe that I created such a beautiful person. And that's God. Right there. That's God. Leo is God. I also believe that we can reach the feeling of God when making love. I see Melissa reach these heights when we make love. So God for me is everything. Do I believe in one God with a name, whether it's Allah or God? No, I don't believe that's the case because I don't think you can label God as one thing, as one being, when it's all inclusive of everything. And that certainly is not me speaking out against religion either. I think faith is a beautiful thing. I think religion can be a beautiful thing when it's used properly. So big question. You know, that's a whole podcast episode right there, I believe, which I'm sure I'll do one day. And I hope that answers your question. Okay. This question is really challenging. I questioned whether or not I was going to answer this, but I am. And if you haven't heard my episode called My Depression Confession, which was episode number 26 and also 25 as well, they're really important episodes to listen to to get some context on what I'm going to talk about. But in a nutshell, last year was really kicked into a very dark place for me for two reasons. One, because I was doing a certain protocol which really was not right for me, a gut healing protocol which really devastated my body on a lot of levels, but I allowed that to happen. I'm not blaming the protocol. It was the intention that I went in with it which probably did the damage. But the other thing was I had this moment last year where I went to see a doctor and I jokingly in my recent tour open wide 
spoke about this and I called him Dr. Death. (laughs) But Dr. Death gave me a great gift. It gave me a wake-up call. And I spoke about how I was not so much given a diagnosis, but he used words which by me were taken as a diagnosis, which scared the absolute crap out of me. Now, what had happened was I had taken my body into a, a state of ketosis. I was doing this really intense gut protocol, which was supposed to be healing, but it did the complete opposite for me. It devastated my gut. And when I was doing this, it pushed my body so far into imbalance that my body was in a state of disease. It was very, it was struggling. It was very, very unhealthy, right? Dr. Death basically said to me that my body is in a state of being pre-cancerous, right? I have not told very many people this, very, very few people. And I only hesitate, I guess, because people have looked to me for health. But I don't want you to look for me for health because you have all the answers already. Yes, I might share some ideas with you. But I think what's most important about Broad New World, about anyone with any sort of influence, is radical honesty and perspective and being able to share those moments that scare the absolute crap out of you. And that is one moment which scared the crap out of me. Now, just a couple of years before that, we'd had one of our closest friends, the beautiful Jess Ainsgo, pass away from cancer. And it's all around us. So the C word scares the absolute crap out of most people, I imagine. So when he told me this, given that I was feeling so crappy at the time, you know, I knew that there was something wrong. Not wrong. I knew that my body was not balanced, that's for sure. So when he told me that, I immediately took it, or my body took it, that I had cancer. Right? And so, literally within about four to six weeks of hearing that, I went from 72 kilos to 59 kilos. 59.8 to be exact. That is the power of fear, my friend. There are a few things in the world, I think, that can scare us like the word cancer does. I didn't even have cancer, but my body was in the sort of state where it could certainly have gone that way if I didn't address the problems. And what had happened for me is this particular gut protocol had created severe candida, severe, severe candida severe bacterial overgrowth, severe small intestinal bacterial overgrowth called SIBO, to the point where I just could not really assimilate any nutrients. I was getting no energy from that. So my body was catabolic. It was breaking down. Now, I allowed this to happen. This was I take full responsibility for this. But this scared the crap out of me because I knew that I was in a bad place with my health. So when he said that word, it was like in... The Aboriginal culture of Australia, they've got the pointing of the bone. I think, I can't remember the exact details, but if someone, I think, does something really bad or maybe murders someone in that culture, they have the pointing of the bone. And people will literally drop dead within a matter of days 
once a bone is pointed at them. Because the belief around that bone, the belief around what that means, and I think this happened a lot with AIDS back in the day. You could see results from people who were going in to get their HIV results and they'd measure their T-cell count before and after their results and you'd see them just drop dramatically just by hearing the word HIV. And I do believe that is exactly what happened with me. Now, I can safely say that I'm in a very good place with my health. I feel the best I have felt in probably, I would say, 10 years. And I could, you know, I attribute a lot of that to listening to my own intuition, getting back to what I know to be true, which was bringing my body back to balance, doing what's right for my body, for my vata, pitta, ectomorph constitution, right? So that is what Dr. Death diagnosed me with. And it leads into the next question. Now, again, this works perfectly because this person is having a similar journey. Hi, Nick. I have a question for you that I've been thinking about for a while. As someone in the public eye slash influencer, how do you share your journey while you're experimenting? I know you have gone from bulletproof coffee to not having bulletproof coffee. And just quickly, quick tangent, if you haven't heard my episode on bulletproof coffee, check out episode number 53, why I broke up with bulletproof coffee. Anyway, back to it. So I've gone from bulletproof coffee to not having bulletproof coffee to an intense gut protocol and back again. I was wondering if you feel like you can't share your journey with people in case you are giving the wrong information. Well, first of all, I want to say I don't believe that there is any such thing as right or wrong. What's good for some person could be really bad for another. Now, for me, my journey with things like bulletproof and ketosis, all these sorts of things, I could look at that as being wrong. And should I have shared that information? At the time, I felt great. I felt great at the time. So it felt true to me in that moment. So it's very hard to go back. But the lessons that I got from that have been extraordinary, right? Extraordinary. And I wouldn't change that. But that experience has most definitely for me really made me think twice about what I do share. Now, I'm doing things right now which are rather unconventional. They go against a lot of popular thinking, but it's working for me. Will I share that? Yes, I will share that once I know for sure that it has delivered what I hope it has delivered. Now, based on my feeling, I know it already has. But if I'm going to share something, I want to back it up with hard evidence, right? And so that's kind of where I'm at now. I will share things that are really exciting for me in the moment. But when it comes to health, I'm so cautious of sharing things around health now. Like the one thing I spoke about in my longevity series is having a big berry smoothie in the morning. I think that's pretty safe advice for lots of reasons. And you can check out my longevity series and that particular one called Get Your Antioxidants at broadhurst.world forward slash 44. But yes, I'm being very, very careful now on what I share. Um, I don't regret anything that I have shared, but I will say that I'm very conscious of what I share. Okay. Now this flows into this next, well, it's not really a question. This is just a statement. Nick, wow, I've been away from listening to podcasts for a few weeks now and just picked up here with your Bulletproof episode and I just wanted to share my experience with you. I am a Vada Pitta who discovered Bulletproof Coffee last year thanks to Melissa's interview with Dave Asprey. 
I got into reading his blogs and listening to his podcasts. And as a coffee lover, the idea of a healthy coffee for breakfast was music to my ears. I started intermittent fasting and bulletproof for brekkie and got into ketosis. As in, I was full on testing my urine every day for ketones. I love, love, loved it at first. My God, my energy was through the roof. I was killing it at F45 and night shift wasn't killing me anymore. Then in January, I'm sure you can guess what happened next. I completely crashed and burnt. My adrenals just basically gave up. I couldn't sleep for more than 20 minutes in a row. I was extraordinarily exhausted 24-7. I had no appetite, ever. I was freezing cold. My face broke out in extreme acne. I lost so much muscle mass. I was a bloody mess. I too did not want to even entertain the thought that it could be my beloved coffee. But it was a visit with an Ayurvedic doctor that woke me up. He actually laughed when I told him that I fasted 18 to 20 hours a day, aside from a big bulletproof coffee in the mornings. It was funny to him that I was doing the exact opposite of what my body needed. Your podcasts have been so beautifully aligned with my journey this year, as I'm learning that eating actual food, and including the dreaded carbohydrate, is exactly what my body needed to heal. I'm still struggling with adrenal fatigue and acne, but I'm getting there. So thank you so much for delivering the support that I needed once again. So, so appreciate every podcast you make. And P.S., I woke up this morning with status quo in my head (laughs) and haven't listened to you for weeks, so that's got to be some sort of spiritual call. You know, that's a really good share, and that's a big share on Instagram messages, that's for sure. But I wanted to read you that because it just goes to show we are so different. Now, this person is a Vata Pitta, just like me. And caffeine, in our constitution, where we have nervous systems that are already pretty revved up, caffeine really can push us into a state of imbalance because we have a tendency as Vata Pittas to have high cortisol. And if you have high cortisol, you really don't want to be having caffeine. Okay. So the lesson here is really to just tune into our bodies, to always listen to our intuition. Okay, it's so important. And just because you hear something from me or for someone else doesn't mean it's going to be true for you. And Bulletproof Coffee for me was certainly a very good example of that. But it could be amazing for you. So, you know, try it out. Completely up to you. But if you do have a tendency to push into high cortisol, you know, you may want to rethink that daily dose of caffeine. And it flows into the next question. My question to you, Broadhurst World, is how do you figure out what nutrition path was best for you? You've spoken about Ayurveda and the problems you have with a ketogenic diet, but how did you actually decide on what was best for you? There's so much conflicting information out there, it's a minefield. Is it a matter of trying everything to figure out what works for your unique bio-individual self? Thanks. Yes, it is. It's definitely a matter, I think, of trying, but at the same time, there is great information out there. If you listen to my Ayurveda series, you'll probably intuitively know just from listening to that what's going to be pretty pretty close for you. But I do believe having support from someone who knows what they're talking about is really important. And I personally can't go past Ayurveda. I don't tend to listen to people who are just purely Ayurveda because I do think sometimes a single system can have a bit of dogma in it. In my case, I have a mentor who is well-versed in all healing modalities. 
And that has brought balance into my body. But a core part of that has been understanding Ayurveda 100%. So how do you decide what's best for you? Well, you tune in, you follow your intuition, and you, you learn. You do have to experiment, but try not to go down a path that doesn't feel good at the very beginning because that's probably not going to work out well for you in the long run, right? So try and use some of the information to shortcut that process and not have to make the same sorts of, well, mistakes, I guess, but lessons that people like myself have had to go through. I don't want you to have to feel like you're dying just to get the lesson, right? It doesn't have to go that far. And if something feels extreme, look at things, look at life with extreme lenses on. If it feels extreme, it probably is extreme. When something is extreme, it's probably going to push you into a state of imbalance in some part of your life. I think that's the best advice I can give you there. Okay. What is one of the biggest mistakes you've made in business? Interesting. Okay, so I don't think I've made any mistakes in business. I've lost money. I have created things that were absolute flops. I've had some success. I don't believe there's any mistakes. Business is one of those things where you just have to get your hands dirty. You just got to get in there and you got to do the work and you just have to navigate it with as much ease and as much grace as possible. So I don't think I can nail a mistake for you, that's for sure. But if anything, I would say that I could have pivoted a lot earlier if I had have listened to my own intuition at certain times. And the reason I blocked my intuition is because I personally at that time was out of balance. So I couldn't hear my intuition. Okay. Now, dropping music and going into real estate I could look at that as a mistake. I could look at that as putting my music on hold for eight years, but no, my music probably wasn't ready back then. It just wasn't. I wasn't ready as a person to release my music back then. I didn't have the life experience. And moving away from my truth, moving away from music, it taught me so much that when I did come back to my music, I wrote that music with so much heart and soul because I didn't want to ever lose sight of what my truth was. So that was perfect. But I do believe that your intuition is what you need to listen to. And when something feels uncomfortable, when you listen to my song, Bones, when you feel something in your bones and it's uncomfortable, don't ignore it. Tune into it. It's speaking to you. Okay. Your intuition's always speaking to you. The same person actually asked three questions. And the next one was, What were some difficulties, if any, that you experienced when transitioning Leo into your relationship with Melissa? And how did you overcome those? Did you have any resistance from his birth mother? Well, no, I've never had any resistance from his birth mother. No problems there at all. I think deep down, she's very happy for Melissa and I and for Leo and for Leo to have so much love in his life. And she certainly knows that that's a blessing. And this will flow into another question in a minute, actually. But the difficulties we've had is not so much transitioning because Melissa and I were engaged in two weeks and Leo and Melissa fell in love instantly after like a week. So that's not really the issue. I think in honoring Melissa here, I would say that being a step-parent is really challenging. It's incredibly hard because you love this child so much, but they're not your own. And I think that comes with all sorts of complications within the step-parents 
own belief systems, within their own triggers, things that trigger them, within their own feelings towards the child. I think it's very, very hard place to be in. And I've seen this with many step parents. It seems to be almost universal. So I don't think the transition is the problem. I think the challenge here is more for the step parent, for Melissa to find her place. Now, from my perspective and Leo's perspective, we think she's the bee's knees and freaking amazing. You know, she offers us so much, so much. She's incredible. But from Melissa's perspective, she sees things that we don't see. She feels things that we don't feel. You know, I'm oblivious to some of the things that trigger her. And I think that's just part of the journey for any step parent. And I think it's okay. I think it's okay to embrace this as a step parent and to acknowledge that it is going to be a challenge and it's going to be unique for your own situation. No one can tell you how it's going to pan out for you because every single family dynamic is so different. So for anybody in this situation, I would say to the to the birth parent to be very patient with the step parent because they come into a situation where often they've had no parenting experience sometimes. Like Melissa came in with a bonus son straight away, an eight-year-old, seven-and-a-half-year-old bonus son and had to learn how to parent. And I had seven and a half years experience on her already. So I think it takes a lot of patience and a lot of courage to move through a lot of the things that come up in this dynamic. But I honor every single step parent because it's a very challenging situation to be in, but it's also a huge blessing. It's a huge blessing because Melissa is a blessing to Leo in so many levels. And Leo is such a blessing to Melissa on so many levels. They teach each other so much. And like any relationship, They are our greatest teachers. And the next one is from the same person. Will you have any more children? And if so, how many would you like to have? The answer to that question is yes. Melissa and I would like to have children together. And with most things, we just trust that it will happen when the time is right. We certainly feel like it is very close, but we're not going to push that. We even have our Jyotish astrologer, Laura Plum. You can check her out at lauraplum.com. And we asked her recently, you know, what do the stars say about us making children? And it it looks really good right now for us for the next couple of years. So yes, it's on the horizon, I would say, but we're not putting any expectations or pressure on it. And with all things, we trust that it will happen at the perfect time, under the perfect conditions. So That for us is a total process of surrender, 100%. Okay, next question. How do you personally get in the mood or in the zone when you are being creative? And with your music, do you usually write the lyrics or the music first? I personally look at music almost like a dream that you've got to catch very quickly because if you don't write it down, you're going to forget it. So with me, how do I get in the zone? You just have to show up with any creative process. I don't just magically have a song come to me. Actually, that's not true. Songs do come to me sometimes when I'm away from my piano, but I inevitably forget them. I record them into my phone, but I don't think I've ever turned a phone recording into an actual song. My songs come when I'm sitting at my piano and I'm putting myself into a state of creativity because creativity comes when you allow it, when you create space for it and you just have to show up. So in terms of 
lyrics or music first. For me, it's always music. I will have some chords on the piano. I will sing some sort of melody and I'll sing absolute jibber, terrible lyrics. I tend to sing the same thing over and over again. I don't know why I use the same lyrics when I'm writing music. And then I'll start to feel lyrics coming to me. And then I'll quickly capture like in a burst of energy, maybe five minutes of writing lyrics. And then I'll use those lyrics as the basis to finish the song. So it's a very spontaneous, very fast process. And I often find that I will have a full song, not perfect, but but a full song outlined within half an hour. And then it's a matter of if that song speaks to me on a deep level, I'll continue with it and I'll refine it and then I'll record it. That's my process. What is your favorite place to travel in the world and why? And where are you manifesting to travel in the near future? Well, this is not really a radical honesty question, but I'll answer it because it's interesting. My favorite place in the world is Noosa, which is on the Sunshine Coast in Australia. For me, it has a sense of grounding and spiritual energy to it, which I just don't find anywhere else. I just love it. It's one of our homes. We have a home there. And it speaks to me on so many levels. It just does. And the next part of the question, where are you manifesting to travel in the near future? Well, one of my original inspirations for getting involved in doTERRA with Melissa was to travel to Nepal because doTERRA does amazing work around the world with their Healing Hands Foundation. I mean, doTERRA really is a company which has been built to change the world more than just sell oils, even though the oils are a very, very important part of that. But in May, I'm traveling to Nepal to go and harvest the wintergreen with the locals there and to work in some of the Healing Hands Foundation and to work with some of the community work that has been put together with the Healing Hands Foundation by doTERRA. So I'm spending a couple of weeks in Nepal doing that and going to some very beautiful spiritual places and going to the Himalayas, which for me, I'm very excited about because my spiritual practice is very much rooted in Vedic philosophy. And a lot of that stems from the Himalayas. So I'm very, very excited to be going to Nepal. Can't wait. And I'll do a lot of social media on that. It's going to be beautiful. Okay. So next question. Hi, Nick. This is my radical honesty question for you. I personally struggle with the amount of abundance that I have. It feels horribly unfair at times that I'm so blessed and taken care of and supported by the universe. Things seem to come so easy to me. Manifesting what I want is effortless at times. I practice gratitude and focus on being present and simply grateful and conscious with and for all that I have. But I can't help but feel guilty that I was simply born into a life of privilege and safety, while others really struggle. There are unimaginable events occurring around our world that I can't even comprehend. So my question is, Do you ever feel this way about your abundance, having a sensation of guilt or sorrow for others who don't have what you have? And if so, how do you shift that story? Or what would you recommend? Man, that's a big question. And there was another question on this, which was, how do you live in abundance slash wealth and maintain a down-to-earth lifestyle and presence? Well, I was, you know, I'm similar to you, okay, because I was born into a life of privilege, for sure. I haven't had things handed to me on a silver platter. I've had to create everything that I have, but I certainly experienced a very beautiful, abundant life growing up with beautiful homes and travel and amazing parents. But I certainly don't struggle with that because I do believe we are here to experience everything that this beautiful 
world has to offer in its full spectrum. And if you are fortunate, blessed, worthy enough to manifest things at will, to have abundance, I think the question for you is, what are you going to do with that? How do you use that abundance? Right? There is no shame in enjoying that at all. I have no shame in flying business class. I have no shame in buying a beautiful home, in creating a beautiful sanctuary for me and my family. I have no shame in buying organic produce. I have no shame in having companies like Holden graciously give us cars to drive. I have no shame in any of that. I have nothing but gratitude for that. But the question is, what do you do with this? And for me, it gives me the space to create this podcast, to create music, to do the things that I want to do in life, which I believe are contributing back to humanity. And our philanthropic side of us, with Melissa and I, it's a big question for us. We recently started a Path to Freedom Foundation, which is about supporting an organization called Destiny Rescue, which is an amazing charity organization that stops child sex slavery and exploitation, which we feel very passionate about because not having your own sovereignty over your own body, let alone your own freedom to make choices is just horrific, right? So I'm not saying that because I'm all high and mighty because we give money to charity. Giving money is just so easy. It's like nothing, right? I'm saying it because if you have abundance, first of all, enjoy it. Enjoy it. Embrace it. Because if you enjoy it and you embrace it and you are the lightest, most shiniest version of yourself possible, that light is going to ripple out into the world and have an impact on people all around you. But if you have the ability to do something with that wealth and abundance, then do it. Be of service. We are all here to be of service. That is our purpose, to serve others. So I think really that answers the question. How do you live in abundance and maintain a down-to-earth lifestyle and presence, you be of service. It's that simple. Next question. I've heard you talk of resistance towards making your music and how you were proud of yourself for moving through it. I'd love to ask you more on this, specifically how that resistance showed up for you, how you consciously dealt with it and effectively moved to the other side. Thanks a billion. I'm loving Broad New World. Thank you, love. Well, look, with this one, it's quite simple. I had to just get over it. (laughs) Like seriously, just get over it. If you know you're born to do something, it ain't going to magically happen unless you take action. So sitting your ass down and doing the work is the only way that this is going to happen. So if you have resistance, you just have to get over it. Honestly, you have to own your truth, own your gift, sit your butt down, right? When Stephen King writes a new book and he just finishes it, what does he do? He starts a new book straight away. No break. He just keeps going. People who are prolific with creativity, they show up every day. It's that simple. So I don't know if I can say much more on that, but definitely read The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. That will give you a lot of motivation to move through whatever you are resisting. Next question. You've said you knew Melissa in other lifetimes and meeting her in this lifetime was inevitable. How do you know this to be true? Is there a big love for everyone and how do we trust we will meet them in time? Okay, 
I do believe that. I've had some interesting experiences with past lives. I did a whole podcast on this recently, which was called My Past Life, episode number 52, which is pretty powerful stuff. I haven't spoken about every single experience I've had with that particular person, but I have had vivid, vivid experiences, recollections, memories of Melissa and I in other lifetimes. We were brothers, twins in Northern Africa in one lifetime, and Melissa saw me drown. We used to swim every day together, and she saw me drown. And Melissa has this great joy of watching me swim. She lights up like you've never seen before. Whenever she sees me in the water, it's really cute. But she also has a fear of water. It's quite interesting. These things could all be looked at as just coincidence, for sure. But it feels good to me. It feels true to me. It supports my story and my love towards Melissa, so why not? I'm just going to embrace that as my truth. I've also had an experience of Melissa and I as husband and wife in a previous lifetime in southern France in the 1400s where we had a a large family with five children and the plague came through. Melissa got the plague and we were a noble family of wealth. Melissa was the center of the court. She was a very shiny human being in that life. And she gave me and the rest of our family the plague. And we all passed away from the plague. And what was funny with kinesiology was that when the particular energy of the plague was held on my body, it showed up, which was pretty freaky. So my cellular energy is still holding on to that aspect of that aspect of my former life, which is pretty fascinating, right? Um, so how do you know it to be true? Look, I just feel like it's a feeling. When we got together, I felt like I was being guided by an invisible force to marry this woman. There was no question. I've never had an experience like this ever in my life, other than possibly writing music where something just lands in my lap like a gift. And I feel like Melissa was a gift. So it's just a feeling. That's how I know it to be true. And I don't know how past lives work. I don't know whether it's a Buddhist thing or I have no idea whether it's splinters of consciousness that you're experiencing from different people and we're all merging into one. I have no idea. But I do know there's something to it. Now, is there a big love for everyone and how do we trust that we'll meet them in time? Well, we're certainly all worthy of having big love, meeting our one, however that looks for you. Our one could be for one night. Our one could be for life. It's whatever you define it as. And I think we're all worthy of that. I believe with over 7 billion people on the planet, I'm sure there's someone out there that you can experience deep love with. It's just a matter of being open to that. So I don't think there's a definitive question, do we all have our one? I just believe that we're all worthy of love and we're all surrounded by boundless opportunity to experience that. Next question, is it possible for a romantic relationship to exist without a natural sexual energy or chemistry existing? I've entered into a new relationship after leaving an old one that left me lots of emotional damage. However, my previous relationship had such a passionate sexual chemistry, it's kept us coming back together, probably for too long. My new relationship is great, but it feels like he may be less experienced emotionally to cope day-to-day in a relationship or less sexually aware than me. So the, the core question really is, is it possible for a romantic relationship to exist without a natural sexual energy or chemistry? I think that's going to be tough, personally. I do believe that, as I said before, 
in a romantic relationship, the one thing that we get to experience together that we don't get to experience with other people unless we're in an open relationship is that beautiful union of sex. It's such a blessing. It's such a gift. It's a way to go deeper into yourself and deeper into your own spiritual path and to get closer to God, however you define that. So I find it very hard to believe that we can have a romantic relationship. We could have a companionship, sure. And that's your choice. If you want to have a companionship and that's okay with you, then let that be your truth. But if you're yearning for a romantic relationship, then yes. Sexual energy and chemistry certainly, surely must be a part of that. And I'm not going to say definitively because there's no right or wrong. But you're asking that question. So I think deep down, you already know the answer to that question. Next question. We were listening to your podcast episode, How to Become a Superior Man, episode number 62, my husband and I. And we had a small argument about it. I was having aha moments and he was kind of shutting down. Welcome to the nature of the masculine and feminine. (laughs) He said, well, it's easy to say that about the ejaculation part. So we wanted to ask you, how did you manage to control that? Did you practice the exercises in the book? How long did it take you? Thank you. Okay. I don't know why you say it's easy for me to say that because it's not easy for me to say that. What we're talking about here is for the man not ejaculating. And the other part of that conversation is separating ejaculation from orgasm. They are two separate things for the man. Whole other episode I'm going to do soon. But in a nutshell, pardon the pun, in a nutshell, yes, I had to practice this. I had to get very, very good at circulating the energy from my sexual center, from my base chakra, from my testicles, out, up my spine, circulating back down again and moving it around. So sometimes during making love, I will just stop and I'll take three, maybe one, two or three deep breaths and I will do certain pelvic floor exercises that will enable me to move this energy out of the testicles and circulate it through the body that becomes a vehicle for full body, whole body orgasm. Okay? Yes, it's a practice. You need to practice it. And I think... If you want to really get good at this, check out The Multi-Orgasmic Man by Muntak Chia. And it's a great book. Very, very practical. It'll give you all the exercises you need to do. And I, I feel like this is so important for men to have control over. I feel like this control seeps into all parts of your life. If you can't control this, I believe that life controls you. My life changed when I controlled this. I can't say that enough. My life changed when I could control this. Honestly, I can see a clear shift in my life when I finally took control over my own sexual urges. Right? And I could channel that energy and use that as a tool of alchemy for my lover and for myself. So when I do ejaculate, it's a conscious decision. And I make that decision before even going into that particular lovemaking session. And recently, a friend reminded me that there was a saying, the unconscious man uses the woman's vagina as a masturbation tool. I know that's pretty harsh, but there's a certain amount of consciousness that it takes and awakening to be aware of this and to be able to control it. 
because it takes a, a level of willpower. And I believe that your woman feels this deeply in her soul. When you've got control of this, she trusts you so much more deeply. And that will take your lovemaking to a whole new level. You'll go deeper than you ever imagined, but you need to be able to control yourself first. Because if you're ejaculating every time, every single time, then your woman subconsciously knows that she can control you. But the feminine wants to know that the masculine is in control. And we do this by circulating the energy out of our testicles through our body and using that energy as a vehicle of transformation for ourselves and for our lover. Okay? So yes, it is a practice. How long did it take me? Not very long. A few months, I would say. And it just gets better and better. And now I don't even think about it. I don't, very rarely do I have to stop and breathe. It's just a natural part now of lovemaking. It just happens now. My next goal really is to move on to frequently having whole body orgasms without ejaculation, which is a whole other level when it comes to the male orgasm. It's a whole, there's a whole beast there that has to be controlled. So yeah, what a juicy topic. And that, my friends, is the end of Radical Honesty Part 2. And you know what? I really enjoyed this. I'm going to make this a continuing thing. So every now and then I'll open up two questions on social media. I'll invite your questions and we'll do a part three and a part four and a part five. And I think this is a great way to get to know me, but a great way to get to know yourself and to get to know our community, our tribe. It's really exciting to share this level of intimacy and this level of honesty with each other. So I hope you've enjoyed this. I have felt completely comfortable this whole time. I've always said the broad new world, the vulnerability that I go into in this podcast is the most comfortable I ever feel. I just love it. I think the world doesn't need more honesty because that would be a judgment on the way the world is. But I do believe it's a very useful tool. And I feel like this is one of my contributions to the world is just being radically honest. And I promise you, you can always expect that from me. So to get the full show notes on today's episode, head to broadhurst.world forward slash 63. And you can also get a full transcript of this show, which will take a long time to transcribe. But I don't do that. (laughs) I've got systems and I have a great team and I'm very grateful for them. Now, don't forget, make sure you hit the subscribe button on your podcast app because I don't want you to miss any future episodes, especially when I do a Radical Honesty Part 3, which I'll let you know about very soon. And please head into iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave me a review, whether it's one or two or five stars. Please tell me honestly what you love and what you want more of. I'm at your service. I love getting ideas from you because, you know, I I think I have about 200 topics to do in my list, which is pretty awesome. So, and a lot of those have come from your questions. I'm very, very grateful for that. And if you could share this episode on your social media using the handle at I am Nick Broadhurst, I would be very, very grateful because then I'll see it and I can say hello and I can thank you for sharing it. Or just share this with one person in your life. And remember today to look up, see the beauty around you, see the beauty within you. Be radically honest with yourself. Be radically honest with others, but do this with love. 
Be gentle with others when you're being radically honest. Be love with others when you're being radically honest. Be sure that your honesty is coming from a place of truth and not a place of projection. You can do this by stopping, tuning in and listening to your intuition before you speak. And as always, have a beautiful day. I love you heaps. Ciao. And just before you go, just wanted to let you know that the information and views presented in this podcast are personal and for educational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented is not intended as a substitute for medical or professional advice. Please seek advice from a qualified medical practitioner before starting any new diet, health or lifestyle practice. There you go. Catch you soon.